Tragic Life Stories by Steve Duffy was featured in Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror of 2011. The story follows Dan, an author who has lost everything, his wife and his book deal. Dan meets Molly shortly after this news and begins writing a new novel, Say Uncle, featuring a character called X. As the story continues, X becomes real to Dan, or so it seems. In this episode with Paige and Jennifer from Big Book Energy, we will discuss the misery lit genre, the use of comparisons, and the strange ending of the story. This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello! I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. Today we have a couple more literary nerds with us. We have Paige and Jennifer. How are you guys? Good. Good. How are you guys? Pretty good. Thanks for having us. Of course. We're so happy you guys are here. So this was actually Paige's pick, right? This was, yeah. So what made you want to pick this story? I would like to start there. I think it's kind of an interesting (laughs) choice. (laughs) Why this one? That's a fair question. It's not a... Probably not your usual pick. Um, so I was reading it and I was like, oh, "Wow, this keeps getting keeps right. getting darker." Yeah. <laughs> Appropriately in dark fantasy stories from 2011. So I actually read this story in 2013. I think after I had just graduated college and was doing that summer where you're trying to look for a job to little to no avail. Um, so I was passing my time reading short stories and. This one came up in there, and to this day, it still haunts me. Like, every once in a while, this is just going to pop into my head. And it's, in fact, a tragic life story. So I think that that's just a mark of a really good dark fantasy story that it still sticks in my head eight years after I originally read this. So there was clearly something that stuck with me, that resounded with me. I think it probably has to do with not only do I like dark fantasy, but I sort of identify a little bit with having your worst nightmare kind of manifested by the own en- your own energy that you sort of put out there so that mm. not sure how well that speaks to my mental state but that's probably what stuck <laughs> with me a little bit I like that you say your own energy you put out there because that was also a thing I guess we're jumping to the end but like how x manifested itself and well did it manifest itself or was it already was he already there it was a really it's still. I'm still just thinking, like, what was going on? Yeah, because the cops didn't see him, and mm-hmm. there was nothing in the boot. He kept saying that, but he kept hearing the bumping still, and then he th- it was there, and Molly saw it. So is Molly also crazy? Is Molly also, like, a creation, perhaps? That's what that was I was thinking. Thought. I, thought maybe I was like, Molly is she was, like, also a part fake? Of his figmented on, um, part of his imagination as well. Yeah. Huh. I didn't even consider that Molly might not be real. well that's just gonna mess with my head even more now thanks yeah no that was definitely by the time I got to the end I started questioning everything I was like was anything that he imagined even real I thought it was really interesting that the entire story was structured around this idea of like eidetic images Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't even know what that meant so I had to like google more because the definition at the beginning of the story was not the most helpful for me either um and yeah it's like is this real is he like suffering schizophrenia of some kind like what is happening i did like that little intro at the beginning because i think it really helped tie in the idea of psychology the whole time and he does use other Mm -hmm. words like insane and crazy throughout the story like dan as the narrator does 
and also, I guess, Steve as the writer. But I just feel like it really worked well to tie that in the whole time that you're thinking about the psychology of it from the get-go. Yeah, definitely. Well, do you want to get into the misery lit genre? I know you wanted to bring that up. I did kind of want to talk about the misery lit genre. So this story, he does like bring it up in the story a lot. And I don't know, like, you could count this as a misery lit genre story just because of the way it like ends up going. But it's just kind of, it's really meta about the whole thing, which I thought was cool. I like seeing that happening with writers and like with pieces of work. So the misery lit genre is a genre of supposedly biographical literature concerned with protagonists' <laughs> triumph over their personal trauma or abuse, often during childhood. The genre is American in origin and it was popular in Britain as well after America and they're full of literary hoaxes which is something you see a lot in this genre is people like writing these stories of their own misery and then it becoming like embellished or not true at all even I know there was one particular mm. one the example was an anti-catholic sentiment boosted the popularity of the story about a nun's supposed abuse but it never happened interesting hmm. we take that personally we're catholic <laughs> 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 no, I think it's really interesting because the whole time, like, reading about the misery lit genre in this, I thought of, like, the ch a child called It, and there's also mm. another one about Munchausen by proxy, about a girl, like, being abused by her mom her whole life. It is a sad genre, and you, you read it to be sad, I kind of feel like. You don't read it for comfort. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, 80 to 90% of the uh, consumers of this genre are female. Hmm. Interesting. I am not I... one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was thinking about this as I was reading because Dan is so condescending about the genre overall as he's like writing it, you know, uh, even though that ends up getting the best of him eventually. But I think the first books that came to mind were things like uh, some of John Green's books even like a fault in our stars and like i feel like a lot of the more modern editions i that kind of follow this trend of misery lit you know all of these like cancer stories and they're so sad and there's usually no attempt to make the ending happy and yet people love this stuff like it's so popular and it reminds me of i will watch like sad youtube videos to like cry you know <laughs> been there <laughs> just to like feel sad and somehow it's like cathartic almost in a way like you have a lot of this negative emotion and then you release it and I don't know do you feel better at the end I'm not really sure that I do but like there's definitely like something psychological going on with that that I feel drawn to it sometimes so yeah, I can't I say know. that I partake on that on the book side of things. I'll say that, like, occasionally I'll watch, you know, movies like that. Like, now that you're mentioning that, My Sister's Keeper comes to mind initially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's all fun and games until they go after the sister. Like, I have two younger sisters. That's just a gut punch right there. But generally speaking, if it doesn't have magic and swords in it, then I'm, I'm probably not watching it anyway, so. Dude. Yeah, it's an interesting like, genre in general, I think. It is. Mm. I like that you brought up that he had a superiority complex about his own writing compared to Misery Lit because it reminded me a lot yeah. of another character in literature, Holden Caulfield from The Catcher in the Rye. Mm. Like all throughout the story, he's very, like, he just has a superiority complex that I think Holden also has, and he kind of is whiny a lot of the times, and he kind of, like, puts down Molly in his head, and then, like, like I don't know, he's just like a dick, generally, like, throughout the whole story. <laughs> yes. But it really yeah. just upsets <laughs> me, and it reminds me a lot of Holden Caulfield from The Catcher in the Rye. 
Yeah, he was a much bigger jerk than I remembered him being when I initially read this. But I was going back again, I was like, man, why did I like this story so much? <laughs> and it, it's still just the, the haunting aspect of it. But yeah, the main character is not at all likable. He is definitely the most pretentious person you could probably meet with, I don't know, so, it almost seems like he's got Napoleon little man complex a little bit. Like, he's <laughs> his stuff's better than everybody else's, even within yeah. the genre where, you know, Tolkien is king and he's giving everybody crap for being a Tolkien derivative. That's, no. That's interesting that you say that, with Tolkien being king. Because it sounded like he actually had Comic-Con. He said never con. He seemed like he was a pretty big writer. And so it's like, how did losing those two books... First of all, how did you lose the like end of the two books for your seven-book deal? And it also right. kind of like had a little bit of the touch of like Harry Potter with it being a like seven-book yeah. deal. And so seven like, books. <laughs> how did you lose it? You had like leaky con, like never con. How did you lose it? I just think there's a lot more going on with him that we don't see. Yeah, we do get a limited perspective through his like first-person narration, right? He's the narrator in his own story, so we're only getting what he wants to tell us, and obviously he's going to try to portray mm -hmm. himself in a positive light. Well, it's not quite a first-person narrator, because he doesn't say I. It's kind of like the third-person limited. Okay. All you ever see is Dan and his thoughts. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I found it very interesting right from the very beginning, like, because he isn't just condescending about misery lit. He's condescending about pretty much, it seems, anything that isn't his own work. Because he, he goes through that whole several paragraphs, or maybe just a paragraph or two, where he's critiquing all these other fantasy writers as well, who apparently he's met and interacted with at these cons that he's going to. And it's really strange. And then also his comments as he's writing his latest work, where he's like, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. And like, this doesn't really need a lot of proofing and, and all this. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, is he actually that good? Because like, he couldn't possibly be that good if he's getting dropped in the middle of his book series. So it's just he's a very flawed, untrustworthy narrator for this entire story. And I'm just like dying to know, like, What's an objective evaluation oh. of his work, I guess, is what I'm, like, looking for. Because all the other signs are there that it's not good. Because it's, like, bargain buys and, like, all that. <laughs> but we'll never know. I don't know about his work, but we do see that he was not currently in the process of even writing the final, not final book, but the latest book. Because he, like, had stopped writing yeah. as soon as him and Angie had issues. So that had been going on for a while now. He said he hadn't picked it up since they started fighting or something. Have a Which little bit I'm of a Winds of Winter situation there. We're still waiting for the next book eight years later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I honestly, I don't know if it's ever going to happen because now there's a TV show that supposedly... That had a terrible ending to it. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. a whole nother podcast episode right there. <laughs> yeah, we'll I see if George R. R. Martin ever finishes that series. <laughs> HBO already did. <laughs> That's true, but no one got <laughs> ending HBO did. HBO's like, this isn't getting finished. We got you. Now you won't even want it to be finished. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think makes people like even hungrier for those books. They're like, no, I want the book. Yeah. <laughs> like, please fix this. <laughs> if this was the ending you had in mind, write us a different one because it's terrible and this is what we actually want. Maybe that's what he was trying to do. He's like, I'm not really sure how to wrap this series up, so let me just test this one out. 
and just float it out there and see how it goes. He's actually the and only it, writer for the show. And he's like, oh, they yeah. hated it. Never mind. <laughs> Throw the manuscript in the trash. Just never look at it again. So did we want to get into the use of comparisons? Yeah, so there were actually a lot of really good similes and metaphors throughout this story that I re- recognize and was really impressed with. Uh, the example I wrote down was where he says that he slept the sleep of the inexpertly anesthetized. How do I say that Anesthetized. Yeah, yeah. Anesthetized. I skip that one too, man. No, there there are some words we just cannot say, and so he'll say them for me, and I'm like, I just can't do it, man. Slept the sleep of the inexpertly anesthetized. And so it just is a very beautiful little um, metaphor, I think. Yeah, metaphor there where he just kind of compares him to a a surgery person. I don't know. A patient? A patient. There we go. Thank you. Um, and there was a lot of these all throughout the story, and the writing was very interesting. Just even the way it opens up, it was just kind of sudden. And I thought that was really beautiful. It was an attritional season, the spring of mm. slow destruction. The writing is just beautiful in this. Steve Duffy, I've never heard of the guy, yeah. but he did a really amazing job. And this story just very sad and very beautifully written. And very long. Like He used a lot of this yeah. like figurative language and description to really like build up the idea of Dan in your head and like just thinking of Dan writing the story and then just to kind of like sweep the rug out from underneath you later on. Yeah, I kind of noted that as well. The story kind of feels like almost a writing journal, like it's telling you how to write just because it goes through Mm -hmm. so much of Dan's own process where it's really almost Steve Duffy's process, it feels like. It almost feels like he's writing this to try to tell us like, oh, if you have issues writing, do this. Like this is like a good way to, to experience your writing. Maybe don't smoke cigarettes. They're bad for your health. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's what really did Maybe not have, like, hallucinations, maybe. But (laughs) I definitely agree. The writing with this story is wonderful. You get such a good sense of, like, who Dan is as a person through the images that he chooses to, like, use to perceive his own world. You get such a good sense of the character. But I really did wonder... Like, how strongly does the author identify with this character? Like, how much of this is perhaps, like, some sort of parody of the author's own process or own mindset? Not saying that he's, you know, like, somehow abusive or or anything like that. But, like, how much of his own self came out in this story is what I wanted to know. Yeah, that's interesting. And, like, looking up just the story in general, not a lot came up on him. So I think he is a pretty new writer and maybe not as like large as some are. And so I think it would be interesting to see if he does get bigger and hear more from him about his process and if he does relate to this. Well, I think it's interesting that you said that you had questions because I think that's a very common effect of the story is there's a lot of questions at the end, especially like, did this happen? Is this real? And it's just the whole story is very questioning in its essence. So there's a lot of questions you walk away from with the story. I was going to make a joke earlier that isn't it like a man to write a story instead of going to therapy? (laughs) This guy probably needed therapy, but instead he wanted to just write a misery lit genre story. Yeah, he he spends like the whole story being like, I hate my life. And I'm like, why don't you just talk to someone about that, dude? And especially like with losing so many things, like with losing his Mm. wife to a possible cheating and then also losing his book deal. 
probably of his own volition on that part. But still, like, a lot of things you're losing and you're kind of losing your own, like, sense of self. Like, go talk to someone. <laughs> Please do not yeah. just drag this poor girl of Molly. Like, don't drag her down with you. And this child that may or may not be real, like, you're just taking everyone down with you. All right, maybe stop self-medicating with copious amounts of alcohol on top of that, because that dude put back a few cans every single night. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. They were like, this, they never said exact amounts, but I'm like, he just pounded him. And they says, oh, he woke up, yeah. how as one would expect. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably still drunk. Right? I bet. Man, I'm probably 10 years younger than this dude, and I still can't knock him back like that. And... <laughs> Lots of practice. That's a, that's a rough day. I do, I do. I have so many questions, though, if X is real or not. And the fact that he still didn't give him a name, it kind of does, to me, tie into that, like, a child called It, mm-hmm. with they only being a, like, sil- like a, a letter or, like, a syllable name. Like, they just called the kid It in that book. But then now, like, he just, he doesn't want to think of a name, so he calls him X. I did like your point earlier, John, about Molly possibly being a figment of his imagination, because how else would it explain X? That's my best, like, reasonable solution to the story. Or otherwise, he just, like, kidnapped a kid at the movie theater and the police missed him somehow. Or maybe the police were fake, too. I don't know. I doubt it, though. I think the police were real. But I think those are the two options. They either kidnapped a child or they were both figments. So I would like to believe they are both figments just to, like, you know, not have the child, like, kidnapping. Yeah. That's fair. I sort of read it as, um... The more interaction that Dan had with this figment of his imagination, the more real it became. Like, the more energy he put into it, the more the universe was like, clearly, you want this to happen, so let me actually ruin your life. Let me show you how bad it can actually get. Yeah, the the fact that Molly was a figment of his imagination hadn't even crossed my mind, honestly. Uh, so that is a horrifying new take on this that I'm going to have to think about more. Well, it just goes a little too smoothly with her for me because, we, I mean, I, I, not that Dan's not a player, yeah. I'm sure, like, whatever, but, like, the man just lost, just lost his uh, fiancé, wife, girlfriend, wife, 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 just lost his wife, wife and his book deal, like, and then the there's no way he's going he out there out. that well and just being like, hey, yo, like, and that doesn't happen. I mean, come on. No. Fair point. She was just so enthused about him. And I'm and like, honestly, like when I was reading the character, it doesn't really give any descriptions of what he looks like, I'm pretty sure. Not that I remember, but like he's like drinking so much beer and stuff. I'm imagining like a beer gut and like, I mean, like, I don't feel like this is like a winner that like if you saw him almost crying in the bookstore, you'd be like, yes, you know? <laughs> yeah, it just seems too good to be true that he finds this woman who's attractive and wealthy and is like super into him. I just find that very hard to believe. I feel like that was also him manifesting (laughs) something into the world. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's kind of telling that the story ends before Molly can like call the police or anything. So she, she threatens to do that and then she leaves. So it's kind of like has this even really happened then? We get the story ending with him shoving himself into the little area between the two doorways. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, is this man just sitting in the closet disassociating? Like, is this the whole story? Or is this actually happening? Is any of this actually real? Or was it all just a disassociation? In the bookstore, he kind of trails off and then he like starts crying or whatever. He just does seem very mentally ill. And I, I think therapy would be a great option for him. But I also think that like, he's obviously not doing it. So like, what's actually happening in the story? 
Yeah, I like the idea of the dissociating. It does seem definitely like possible schizophrenia or something else. Maybe like borderline personality disorder as well with how he's just so kind of like malleable to his surroundings and what's going on. Well, do you guys have anything you'd like to bring up before we go into a little bit more of the ending? Speaking a little bit more to the fact that we're just not really sure what's real and what isn't in the story, I would also be fascinated to know what his and his ex-wife's relationship actually was like because... Obviously, you know, there's that moment where she is divorcing him and tells him to get out. She gets the house. Her lover that she probably cheated on him with moves in. And so that kind of characterization, you would normally think like she's like the the quote unquote bad guy in this relationship. But there were like a couple of like hints in there where I was like, oh, but like, how did he treat her? Um, There was one moment where he was talking about being at a con and he says quote, while Angie sat abandoned at their table, unquote. You know, he's like being surrounded by like fans and other authors and is like talking away and like his wife is just like sitting at the table and he's ignoring her. He even characterizes that himself as abandoning her. I'm just so curious (laughs) what that relationship was actually like. Clearly was such like a huge like tie to reality for him, I think, his relationship with his wife, because he talks about that a lot, how she kept him like more grounded in this world than in, you know, his head, essentially. Yeah, so I have a feeling like their relationship was not good, but we don't really get any more insight into that. I think that is a very telling line, the one you pointed out, about how he left her there. And so I think she had already felt... And he even said at the beginning that she had fallen out of love with him. So he really couldn't blame Mm. her. And I think he probably felt her pulling away the whole time, but he didn't know how to fix it or maybe didn't want to. Like he wanted to be that like kind of victim almost. Yeah, that's what was kind of really like showed me a lot about him was he didn't try to fight for his wife or anything, but he feels so strongly about misery lit, like put it down so vehemently. Like he really like doesn't like it. And he says that like to us, that like the reader. So like, but with the wife thing, he just kind of accepts it and says that she fell in love with him. So I think there was more going on there maybe that he's not telling us at all. I don't know, like maybe he just wasn't attentive at all. Maybe he was drunk all the time. We see his drinking issues. I mean, he did say he stopped smoking for her. So that leads me to believe that maybe like... He was better with her, but maybe she wasn't better with him, which I can Mm, definitely see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did categorize himself as, like, a walking disaster uh, at one point. I don't remember the exact language he used, but it was some neon sign that came up above his head that was like, don't come near me. Uh, Yeah. So there's some self-awareness there. He just clearly doesn't care enough to actually fix it. He's just like embraces that instead. (laughs) Step one, identify the problem. He just never made it to step two, which was fix it. And so I think also with that, like with his life going downhill, that's probably why he would start to dissociate a little bit more and create Mm. these good things in his life. Well, the good thing with Molly, X was not a good thing, but (laughs) I think that's where you would see him creating the goodness with Molly and maybe even his own like self-loathing creating the X character. To kind of like also yeah. ruin that good thing he had going for mm-hmm. him, I think. And so that's something he can blame for it. Like yeah. he could blame Angie for cheating on him. And so he could blame X for ruining this relationship with Molly if she was real. Yeah, I think it's like you said earlier, he's playing the victim a little bit more. And he, he almost manufactures this situation where he is very much a victim. Although he comes across very much like the abuser and not the victim. But I'm sure in his own mm. mind, he's like, I am the victim here, not the one victimizing a poor young child that you have imagined. I think it's also interesting to point out when he starts smoking 
And then he starts having X having his feet burned by the cigarettes. Because he said, my uncle used to burn my feet. And then he talks about himself starting smoking again. And then he says, with cigarettes. Yeah. And so it's like, wait. So that kind of also adds another layer to the dissociating. And maybe it's possibly real. But we don't know. Yeah, I wondered what character does Dan associate himself with the most? Is it X, like this abused child? Or is he slowly becoming Uncle Bob? That's That was, it was Uncle Bob, right? Yeah. Because, like, at first I thought that X was maybe kind of, like, a symbol for, like, his own victimhood. And maybe it, X still is throughout the entirety of the story. Like, his own, like, inability to accept responsibility is going to ruin his relationship with Molly, who may or may not even be real. I don't know. But, like, also he kind of, he absolutely, like, takes on that role of the abuser in this story as well. Because he, you know, gets to that point where he actually, like, hits X um, and all of a sudden has this emotional understanding of what Uncle Bob might be feeling. I don't know. It was it was very strange. He's like becoming both of those characters at the same time. I agree. I think there is a lot of duality with it. And then even how Duffy throughout the story kind of says, oh, this will make a good symbol as Dan is writing. I think he kind of did that to hint there are symbols in his own writing a little bit just to really point that out. And so I think there is a symbol within X and Uncle Bob in itself. That mm. Uncle Bob is his possibly abusive tendencies, and maybe he did abuse Angie, and that's possibly why Angie left as well. And then there's also the fact of X and being the victim in his life. The ending we kind of talked about the whole time. About, it's the very, it's the kind yeah. of the resounding question. It's hard to escape. Walk away. Yeah, <laughs> it's very hard to escape. There was a lot of buildup to that ending and just those that last like three pages. You're like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. When X shows up in the yeah. bedroom, and you're like wait, what? Like, why can Molly see him? I didn't think he was real. And so that just leaves you with the question at the end, which I think changes the whole story beforehand, too. The buildup that the author creates through the whole story, like this emotional tension that just keeps building through the whole thing was really well done. Because the whole time I'm thinking he's gonna lose it. Like his mental state is unraveling right now. And we're, we're gonna see it any second. And then we get it like right at the end. And it just leaves you with all these questions, which we've already talked about. I can see why this stuck with you for so long, Paige. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, yeah, just really haunting. Yeah, it just randomly pops into my head at 2 a.m. in the morning. Oh, God. Yeah. So- <gasps> That's creepy. I feel like there was another powder keg in this story. You get the one with Dan where he's like, oh, this guy's going to have a mental breakdown soon. He is not doing very well at all. And I think there's another powder keg with Molly. Like, I kind of felt that Molly was too good throughout the entire story. I kind of said that earlier, that she was just too perfect, which I mean to believe she wasn't real. But it also led me to, like, have this sense of, like, wow, like, this is going to go poorly somehow. Like, where is it finally going to go wrong? I really thought it was going to be like she was stalking him somehow because like she was like some yeah. crazed fan or something. But then it didn't turn out going that route. Yeah, I could have seen that, especially whenever he wrote in that, like, I think I heard I love you on the phone thing. Yeah, I yeah. could totally have seen where you were going with that. I was like, uh, is he making that up? Did he imagine that she said that? If she actually said that, that's creepy and... <laughs> Like, way too much after the first Pump the get-together. Yeah, get-together. Not even a date. <laughs> not even a date. Not even a date. Not even. It was definitely an interesting story, and it was one I maybe not would not have, like, sought out myself, so it was a nice change of pace from ones we usually do. Yeah, definitely not a classic short story that they will give you in any proper high school class, but... You 
could read it in college and be okay. This would be a good college writing one to read. I can see this being in a creative writing course yeah. or something. Yeah, but high school, no. <laughs> it's a high little, definitely little not, risque no. for some no. high schoolers. Yeah, there were some decent too much. other stories in that collection as well. Not quite as mind blowing as this one was, but still interesting. Well, I think that's going to round out this episode. So, listeners, thank you so much for listening. As always, we could dissect this story so much more. We could probably talk for hours. We want to keep it short for you guys. Paige and Jennifer, do you guys want to plug your podcast? So you can find us on Instagram and on Twitter, both of them at big underscore book underscore energy. And we also have a link in our bios for both of our social media accounts. So if you want to check out any of our other relevant links, those will be there. And finally, we do have a website as well, and that's bigbookenergy.com. That will also lead you to all the appropriate links like our Patreon. Um, Our blog is up on our website where we occasionally post reviews uh hopefully that'll be more of a thing this year than it was last year (laughs) thank you guys so much for joining us and we'll catch you next time as we read speech sounds by octavia butler again with Paige and jennifer analytical is created hosted and produced by hannah and john newland it is edited by john newland the artwork was created by hannah newland using logo maker and is owned by hannah and john newland the theme music you're jamming to now is created by john bartman and you can check out more of his work at his website johnbartman.com web design is by hannah newland and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com analytical and you can find that link in the description all our social pages are at analyticalpod and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode to chat about literature or life please rate and review us and subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends it will help other people find and enjoy as well 